Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 316 for June 18th, 2009. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. We've got a lot of great stuff on the program for you today, including the long-promised Broadway-abridged version of Little Mermaid. We've also got the producers of Vanities set to open at second stage on July 2nd to talk about the long and winding road, the production has taken. We have got Jenna Esposito, who is uh, out promoting her new cabaret gig. Jenna Esposito sings Connie Francis, as well as her CD, 13 Men and Me. And we have got the EBE Ensemble talking about their group and their new play, Predisposal. But before we get to that, I've been hinting at some uh, news that I've been wanting to announce for a while, and I can now do it. The deal is final, paperwork signed, recording dates are set. I am going to be producing and engineering a CD compilation for the BMI Musical Theater Workshop featuring 10 or 12 of their up-and-coming composers that have come through the workshop paired with Broadway stars singing the songs. Uh, It's going to be a very exciting project. It's going to be released on Shikaboom Records late in the fall. And uh, not only is this great news for me, but... uh, In true Broadway Bullet fashion, we're going to be taking you behind the scenes of the making the album with lots of uh, live blogging, Twittering, uh, videos, interviews that will be airing on the show. Lots of great information on that. Um, I really want to thank my listeners, especially those of you who donated earlier when uh, financial times were really tight because truly this project wouldn't be happening. I wouldn't still be here in the studio if it wasn't for your help. So thank you very much. Um, Also, it's kind of a... Thank you to Broadway Bullet listeners. Um, I'm announcing this here first, by the way. Um, other than hints, uh, nobody is hearing the official announcement before you guys. So if you want, I'm going to have a quick contest. Uh, email me uh, within the next two weeks before the next episode, before volume 317. Uh, let me know uh, why you listen to Broadway Bullet and how long you've been listening. And I will randomly draw five of the names of the people who respond. And you will win a free copy of the signed CD when it comes out. Uh, now, I can't guarantee every signature will be on there because, of course, the CD comes out after the people are in the studio. But there's probably going to be some events promoting it and stuff, and I can probably get a good amount of signatures on that CD for you. Um, just kind of my way of saying thank you. So email me at mgilbo, that's M-G-I-L-B-O-E, at broadwaybullet.com. Let me know how long you've been listening and uh, why you listen to the show, and I'll announce the winners in our next episode. With that said, it's time to hop on board the bullet and get to our first interview. 
on the boards. The show Vanities has been taking a long and winding road to the New York stage, and the press has made a little bit about it, but what's unusual to me is the fact that the truth is this is not an unusual story in any way. But Vanities is finally finding its home at Second Stage. Uh, it's opening in previews on July 2nd and goes into full performances on July 16th. Um, I've been following the show with you guys for a while since... Uh, Pretty much November 9th, 2006, when we first had Leslie Kritzer on Volume 13 with David uh, Kirschenbaum, the composer, and she sang one of the songs that is still in the show at that point. And uh, we've had other interviews since, which I'll remind you of. But we now have the producers who have valiantly fought their way for the past uh, two and a half years to get the show to where it is. And and I, I believe they're still on, on track for We're bigger sites. We're still fighting. <laughs> so still alive. Randy Adams and Sue Frost. How are you doing? We're good. We're good. So, Vanities, you guys have been involved with this now how long? It's at least two, two and a half years, isn't it? Well, let's see. Um, we were both involved with the show before we became involved with the show, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. Randy. I used to be the managing director at a theater works in Palo Alto where it first premiered in uh, the summer of 2006, and we had done a reading of it in the fall of 2005. So that I go back a ways with this little show. Um, and it's good. I mean, it's come a long way since then. And we had, um, I had produced David's um, Summer 42 up at the Goodspeed, which was subsequently produced in Palo Alto before that came off Broadway. So I've known David for several years. So I was involved with Vanities as really as a friend, really okay. as an advisor through... Um, uh, the Palo Alto production, and then it was presented at uh, NAMPT in the fall of 2006, which was right around the time Randy and I were starting our commercial producing entity. So Vanities was actually the first project that we optioned, optioned yeah. as, as commercial producers after the NAMPT presentation in 2006. And, sub and subsequently, we have um, shepherded, shepherded it through several... Uh, a couple of readings and a production last summer at the Pasadena Playhouse, and now um, second stage this summer. Now, the stars are still with it. We interviewed um, in volume 211, which is still downloadable, on <laughs> June 28th. We interviewed all the three leading ladies who mm -hmm. are... Sarah Stiles, who actually has been with it since Palo Alto. Actually, I don't know, did she do that first reading? No, she didn't do the first reading, the but first she reading. did the Palo Alto production. Mm -hmm. And Lauren Kennedy and Annalisa Vanderpool. Yeah. All three of whom did the show in Pasadena and are doing the show in Second Stage. So, of course, there are big announcements in all the trades, and you know, mm -hmm. Vanities, you know, last, you know, before last summer was announced to be Broadway for mm -hmm. the 2008-2009 <laughs> season. Mm -hmm. so, so, what happened? What you guys? happened? Well, well, they promised us a show on Michael, Broadway. Michael, Michael, you tell me. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. Um, I I got off the plane, came back from Pasadena, <laughs> the end of September. And the stock market had gone south 800 points that day, and I can remember getting off the plane and listening to the you know news radio 88, thinking, "Oh my God, this is bad timing. This, this is, is really not bad good, timing. not good." <laughs> and um, you know, as 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 you know, people, it, it, the industry sort of reacted, sort of. Um, what can you say? Nobody knew what was going to happen. Um, people kind of freaked out. We we found it very challenging to raise the rest of the money. We were also very concerned at that point about what kind of an audience there was going to be. 
um, for a small musical that wasn't based on a famous movie and didn't have big stars. So we decided to pull back. And it was a, a very painful decision, <laughs> uh, but we believe it was the right decision. Um, and it was, you know, excruciating to pick up the phone and call each and every one of the people who expected to be opening up Broadway in February. And I'm not talking about the cast. I'm talking, I mean, you know, when you put on a show, there's a lot of people yeah. involved. And let them know that we were not going to be able to um, do what we had hoped to do. And that we didn't really know what the next step was. I mean, we were in limbo for several Some weeks <clears throat> until um, the uh, second stage opportunity came our way. Well, and one thing our, our listeners may or may not realize is it's really common practice. Almost every show that you see announced for Broadway, so opening on this date, has mm -hmm. not raised all their capital yet. Mm -hmm. Oh. So, <laughs> so, there were some folks this last spring who were raising it up to the very last minute. <laughs> where, just in general, not just with your production, where is the chutzpah to announce a show opening? I mean, how much of it is chicken and egg? I mean, how it's much totally do you need chicken the, and egg. How much do you need the show date to raise the cash and... <laughs> it's a little bit of both. You know, you, people have to know it's real. You know, they have to know you have a theater. They want to feel like you know what your dates are and what's happening with it. Uh, and at the same time, they want to know whether you're going to make it or not. And you're on the other side going, can we make this? Will it work? And, you know, you always want to believe that it can. Uh, and many times, I mean, certainly for us now, you know, um, you, you, you know, with our next project, we said, okay, we need somebody to guarantee this. So we'll keep raising the money, but we know we're going no matter what. Right. So. And I think that it's also this um, – you, you're sort of running on parallel tracks. You've got to keep the show moving ahead. You've got to keep working on the show. You've, you've got to keep working with the writers and the creative team to keep the show on track. You've got to be working with the marketing team. You've got to be working with the advertising company because you can't just honestly I don't know I mean I, I don't think you can wait until you've got every dime in the bank and then say okay now let's go because that's that's a process so <clears throat> one can only hope that that um, one learns from one's mistakes <laughs> and um, we you know we we thought we had um, most of the money in place and what happened was we had a couple of folks who got very nervous and ultimately couldn't couldn't fulfill their commitments and um, and I understand that I totally understand Can we name it. Names? No, no, of course not. <laughs> of no. course not, Michael. Good try. <laughs> I, know. I gotta I gotta try though. Huh? But you know, it, it, it's that's just the way it is, and and it's part of the world. And and also, I mean, I don't think we can minimize the fact that we were already a risk without it being a risky environment. You know, what Randy and I feel passionate about is producing new musicals, new original musicals. And that's risky. It's risky anywhere. It's risky on Broadway. It's risky anywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so we were already out there. And we also felt very strongly that we weren't going to hire stars. We were going to make stars. So um, we were already in a in kind of a, of a tricky position. Well, you know, this past season seemed like a weird one to me in, in a way, too. It, it, it almost seemed like everybody had preordained Billy Elliot is going to be the big winner, you know, in musical for the best musical this year. And that all the shows, like, really front-loaded in the season. We had tons of shows opening in August, in September, and stuff. And to me, it seemed like kind of a strategy, because a lot of times they like to open their Tony shows, you know, March, April, you know, mm -hmm. last half of the year where it's fresh in Tony minds, and so many new things open in the first half that I kind of felt that they were like, let's try to make our stamp before, you know... 
I think a lot of it was just economic too. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of those those shows were done. The money was in; they yeah. were going. Well, it's when it got to the spring, you know, real estate is a, is a challenge. You know, and and at that point, before last fall, I mean, you would you would jockey for. A theater. It was really. I mean, it took us a long time to secure a theater for Vanities. We spent a lot of time developing um, our relationship with the Schuberts, and um, and it, and they didn't know. You know, they kept saying, "Well, it's going to depend on how this. If this falls out, if this doesn't happen, you know, it's a it's a it's a very tricky balancing act that I don't think people understand just how complicated it is. And also, you know, you wanted us to be frank. We'll be frank. Mm-hmm. We're not. Um, such well-established producers on Broadway that we can pick up the phone and and call and say, we're coming in, we need this theater, and, you know, because this is our 16th show and we've got a relationship with you, we're the new kids on the block. So we also had a lot of um, I'm glad to to see new people getting it. But while you're maybe new in the commercial Broadway production world, you said your background, uh, Randy, but Sue, I know you have a heavy background with, uh, it's at the tip of my tongue, but is Goodspeed. I was at Goodspeed for 20 years um, as the associate producer and my primary responsibility was developing all the new works at the Norma Terrace. But before that, I had worked here in New York for almost 10 years um, as a company manager, general manager, assistant. So I had some contacts in this world, but I hadn't actively been working in this world for 20 years. So um, I have... We both have 20, 20 years of experience developing and producing new works in a not-for-profit arena. It's a very different – it's a different world. It's a yeah. different world. And I was at Theater Works <clears throat> in Palo Alto for 21 years or whatever and did a lot of new shows, including ones by Henry Krieger, Bill Russell, Everything's Ducky, and uh, Kept were out there with us. We were the first production of Sideshow outside of New York. Uh, Andrew Lippa and Brian Crawley's Little Princess was out with us. So – I spent a lot of time with new writers and new works and new musicals out there. So that's sort of how we've done. But it's a different world. Yeah, it's a whole different world. And then I think Sue and I did the NAMP Festival as chair. She did it, I don't know how many years. I did it how many years. Uh, So (laughs) we feel like we knew everybody in God as we were coming into town. (laughs) And they all know us, too. Well, before we continue, I know you have a, a great demo of some songs from the show. Do you want to set up the first song we're going to play here? Well, let's see. We've got... um, the wonderful Lauren Kennedy singing Fly Into the Future. Um, this is a show that, this is a song, I think this is one of the songs that David says he wrote overnight before um, before a reading. And uh, one of the early, early readings of the show, he, he um, wrote this song, and it is the character of Mary in scene two. For, for, for anybody who doesn't know the show, Vanities is based on the play by Jack Hefner, it is in uh, the play is in three scenes. We meet the girls as teenagers in Texas in 1963. We meet them as sorority girls in Texas in 1968, and then we meet them in New York uh, uh, several years later as their friendship is uh, being put to the test. So this particular, and then I can talk a little bit more later about what the musical does, which mm-hmm. is at a fourth scene. But this particular song, the character of Mary, is really. Halfway through the sorority scene where we hear that she's really rebelling and she's really ready to move on and move beyond this really tight uh, friendship and this really small world that these girls have lived in before. See the world. All right, let's take a listen. There she goes again. Look at chatty Kathy, keeping track of life with her paper and pen. 
Then there's poor Joanne, desperate to marry, bringing up her wedding again and again. This would be my world, this is what I'm in for, years of planning parties and being a wife. Sing song, lime green. I don't want to be mean, but this isn't my scene, and I feel like I need something bigger. up was stifling cause I was never free. School is getting stale and I'm sick of this sorority. Think I need some distance, a place to disappear. So it's adios and away I go and I'm kinda scared for the moment's here to fly into the future. Gonna rock on a ride so that no one can find me. I'm flying into the future. Moving on with my life and leaving all this behind me. Free from textbooks, free from Texas, free from folks who give me back. I'm gonna fly into the future. Time to fly. And I'll never look back. I could grab my pencil and make some little plan. I could be a housewife and settle down to serve a man. I could take a job with my bachelor's degree. But I think I'll go to the Coliseum and take some bachelors home with me and fly into the future. Where there's no one to boss me or judge how I'm living. There's only me in the future. Plus a couple of Italian boys who like what I'm giving. Mama is a drunk. Mama sleeps with Howard when she gets in a funk. Howard's kind of creepy. Howard's kind of crude. Howard's really fat and walks around in the nude. Dad ran off with Julie. Mama hates his guts. He's okay, but truly my whole family is nuts. Mama doesn't like me. I don't even try, which is why I just gotta say Three-person show, uh, you're shooting for Broadway at this point. 
the, there have been a lot of smaller shows that have had success recently. Uh, in fact, uh, Second Stage has had a lot of luck with uh, some of them coming up. What were the? Were, how different is the challenge when you're trying to sell a three-person intimate musical with, with some great songs versus it's Shrek, it's uh, Billy Elliot pre-imported from the UK, it's oh we're, we're going to do another West Side Story. I, I mean, there's certain things that I think a lot of investors go, oh yeah, yeah, that's going to make money, whether or not it does. <laughs> how how is it coming in with with this approach? You know. Well, you know, it's obviously challenging. I mean, there are no stars. Um, a lot of people think they know this show because of the play. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why. It's been around for 30 years or whatever. Uh, and so I think the big challenge is when you look at three people on stage with uh, no stars in it, people are like, how is that going to work on Broadway? How are you going to sell tickets? Yeah, how are you going to sell tickets? I mean, that becomes the big issue. And I mean, I think the the big part is, I mean, there's a full physical production. There's sets, costumes, you know, all those things. And even if you knew the original, which was much simpler than uh, the musical, yeah, you don't quite have a sense that it's a big show, uh, even though there are only three people. And it feels like a big show. Uh, we, we very specifically produced it to fit a small Broadway theater. Um, it wasn't three girls on stools. <clears throat> and we'll, I would like to address the whole issue of why Broadway versus off-Broadway yeah. as well and that whole challenge of, of attracting an audience. We have always felt that this is a this is a this is a word of mouth show. This is a show that people that engages people. That once they see it, they like it. They go home. They tell their friends. But the big challenge is getting people in to see it to begin. <laughs> you know, and we're not crazy. I mean, we really did <laughs> did try to find um, a situation. Have to be a little crazy. Well, you have to be, or you wouldn't do it. Trust me, I was slightly. I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, and he said, "I believe that all producers are cockeyed optimists, and marketers need to be realists. And where it becomes problematic is when the cockeyed optimist also." has to be the realist. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty fair. Um, fair. But I think, you know, we have to... We, we did originally um, <clears throat> approach Second Stage and a couple of the other not-for-profits about doing the show uh, in New York with, with them. Um, and timing was not our friend. Um, so we continued to pursue some other... Avenues, you know, scheduling is a is a bear. When you, I always say that producing is really just scheduling and managing expectations because that's what it is. And what we were trying to do was find something that fit within the framework of what our artists could do, what what our director was available for, um, how we could keep the project, the momentum of the project moving. Um, so we uh, were fortunate that um, our friend Sheldon Epps out at Pasadena had always been a fan of the play and said, you know, let's come out here and let's do it. Let's keep it, let's keep it moving. Let's keep it going. And so we, we had that opportunity to go out and test the show with a subscription audience. I mean, that's a big, that's a big bonus. It's a big bonus to not have to start from square one with, um, with X number of empty seats a night. And um, we learned a lot out there. But we also learned that, that one of our big challenges was how to tell people what the show is and how to get them in the door um, <clears throat> when you're competing with Shrek, when you're competing with Billy Elliot, when you know Broadway's a, uh, it's a, it's a different marketplace. It really right. is, and and we always felt like oh we had to do we had to get it up so people could see it, but we had to get we had to figure out how to get them in first, and it, that's expensive and it takes time, and you have to make sure you have a reserve and enough money to keep the show going as it builds. I mean, you see how some of these other musicals um, are facing those challenges and. 
some more successfully than others. And um, <clears throat> so we feel blessed that we now have the opportunity to, to give the show a New York premiere in a situation where um, uh, a, th- a, a theater company like Second Stage, which has such a fantastic reputation and deservedly so, and also has 9,000 subscribers. Yeah. So we did, make, we did make me a song off Broadway. It was our first venture. We did it as a commercial uh, venture. Bill Finn, the music of William Finn, that had been done at Theater Works in Hartford. It was an incredible struggle to get an audience. And we thought, well, people know who Bill Finn is. But but the amount of time and money and energy it takes to to, to market uh, an off-Broadway show is, um, you know, it's it's the same money, it's the same energy, but it's it, 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 there's a different perception in terms of an audience, in yeah. terms of what they pay attention to. The know? economics of it is so different. I so mean, in challenging. In terms of what it costs out there for off-Broadway versus Broadway, and <clears throat> even the smallest return on Broadway versus the smallest return over on off-Broadway is so different. And, and in raising money, too. I mean, investors mm-hmm. aren't interested, really, in off-Broadway. They're interested in Broadway because it's, it's the, as Randy says, the return is better, the... the, the, the Visibility. Um, visibility is better. So we said we don't – and when people said, why don't you do Vanities Off-Broadway, the thought of a commercial Off-Broadway production again was enough to make us blank, you know. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God. If you can't learn from your mistakes, you're doomed to repeat them, you know. Yeah. So we just felt very strongly that this was a show that could sustain itself once we got it there. And um, and I don't think we – I don't think we've changed our mind. We've just, you know, we've just following a different path, you know? Well, you know, it's like anything. Every show finds its way, and it seems like this is the path that this one's supposed to take. You know, obviously we took that hard look and said, you know what? This doesn't look good for the spring going into (laughs) Broadway. You know, let's just step back. Uh, And we did, and out of that came (laughs) the call from second stage. And so you go, okay. It yeah, was well, great. I, I, let's put, we have one more song from your demo. After the song, I want to get into this, the story okay. of how this now came to land home sure. at the second stage. So uh, do you want to set up the second song we're going to play? The second song is also a solo number. It's called Cute Boys with Short Haircuts, and it's sung by Annalisa Vanderpoel, who plays Kathy. It is also uh, in scene two, which is a sorority scene. And what what happens is, you know, in the first scene, we see these girls as teenagers, and they think they own the world. You know, they're just like any other any other teenager who happens to be popular, ready and pretty, to conquer and the world. They're ready to conquer the world. They've got it all. By the time we get to the end of the second scene, that sorority scene, it's become clear that the world is falling apart a little bit. And Kathy, who thought she was going to get married and have kids, marry her high school sweetheart. He dumped her for another girl. And he's, she's now just figuring out that her plan has, has fallen apart. And she has no other plan. So that's kind of the setup for her singing um, Cute Boys. All right. Let's take a listen. Seems like one of those where did I go wrong days. Can't stop crying and I guess I'm not so strong days. Lost the only guy I ever had. It's been one of those Seems like I've been scarred years Can't get out of bed And life is kind of hard years No one ever made me feel so sad Now all I see are cute boys With short haircuts Walking by in a blur And all I see is him and me That's how it goes when cute boys with short haircuts set your senses astir. 
says he's true, then ditches you for her. So we've established that you have, had already approached second stage with this show. So how did this now come full circle and and and, and get onto the second stage, Bill? Well, timing is everything, <laughs> you know. Sometimes uh, they had they were about to have a show that was going to fall out uh, for various yeah. reasons. Scott Ellis is, uh, was the director of Mr. and Mrs. Fitch, and his his schedule changed because of weeds. So they were looking at an opening. We had. Chris Burney knew Vanities. He'd always been a huge fan of Vanities. Chris mm-hmm. is the associate artistic director there. 
And he had been talking to one of our producing partners, Jason Wright, and said, you know, if, if it looks like we have to put Mr. and Mrs. Fitch off, what do you think they'd be interested in talking about vanities here? And, you know, Jason called us. That and went, sounds like somebody got invited to the prom and got ditched. He goes, oh, okay. So. <laughs> 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 the girl I wanted to take can't go. Do you want No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I mean, as I said to you when we had talked about it a long time ago, yeah. it just wasn't going to work out because – you know, second stage uh, initiates a lot of new work, and they had a lot of things in the pipeline, and it just didn't look like anything was going to be available for such a long time. We decided to just keep moving, you know. So, But it didn't mean that Chris hadn't remembered the show and liked the show. So, And I think when you do have the responsibility of a subscription audience, you do want to make sure that you're always – able to provide them with with a show and yeah. and and so we were thrilled it was all it felt like kismet to us you it know did, yeah. <clears throat> well and i think they knew they knew we had the physical production they knew we had so we could move part fast. of the show so that it would be easy to move into a slot that was coming up soon uh as opposed to just starting from scratch on a new project so i think it it just worked i think for both of us at this point in time well, uh, now I'm probably going to be addressing the cockeyed optimist in, in the two of you. Second Stage has a pretty good track record recently. Uh, the, you know, they sent uh, Spelling Bee, you know, to a, a long run. And now Next to Normal has won some Tony Awards and uh, is set to probably run for a little while. Is, there, is, is this something that happens after the run? Or is there already, like, mumblings of how do we transfer this now to Broadway, our original goal? <laughs> But that's always it's always, <laughs> that's out, always there. out there. Always you know, there. it just is. Uh, I think that you know, certainly people are watching to see what's going on with this piece. There are a lot of people certainly who want to see it up on its feet and see what happens with it. I think for us, we're we're excited about getting it up here in New York and seeing what happens. Um, we know that. It may have some future life in New York. It may not after second stage. Um, but for us, we're looking forward to that part of it. Um, but we also know that a lot of this, this show's life is beyond New York, uh, I, I to be say, honest. I, I was going to say, I mean, not to at all, you know, suggest what its fortunes might be on Broadway or off-Broadway, but to me, the real success of the show is going to be community theaters and colleges and regional theaters, I think, around the country are going to just eat this up. When, well, it's and, three girls. It, there will always be three women who can do story. this show. And it's a really good story. I'm from story. Great Falls, Montana. We can never find guys for a, show, <laughs> a musical with three girls. Hallelujah. When I was at the Good Speed, I would get a call once a week. Easily once a week from a theater company or a producer, or, you know, any other thing. Hey, do you know any small musicals? We're looking for small music. I'm like, um, now I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is one weird thing where I, I think something has to be figured out how to make the off Broadway scene healthier. It's so true. In New York, because there is such a dichotomy. The rest of the United States really only hears about stuff from Broadway, but at the same hand, they. All the various performance outlets aren't that well suited to present Les Mis all the time. You know, there, there's very few companies that you know, you know, community companies that can really put on a good production of Les Mis. Right. There's a shitload of great, you know, community theaters that could put on a great production of Vanities easily because it can be done yeah. anyway. I mean, the good part about it is it is you can do it any way you want. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, we're yeah, doing it can... a certain way, but you can do it as simply as you want to or as yeah. elaborately. As but you the, want. but it's all but about it's all about getting it out there. It's all right. about getting it out there. And the I mean, Catch Twenty Two <clears> is the irony there that Broadway is kind of like the pre-sale for all the community groups right because they have to get their audiences in the theater right yeah and, and they it, need, it's they actually need more than new york the new york thing uh for those theaters out there not 
not even Broadway so much. Yeah. Just that it's been in New York. Yeah, it's had that. Off, it's sort of had that stamp of approval. Stuff. It's gotten the reviews. It's done all its stuff. And, and that's why I think the off-Broadway scene, some, something needs to be done to make that healthier and more of a more viable format. We couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's, you know, it seems like there are several shows that ought to survive and do well off-Broadway. Um, but for some reason, it is really difficult. I think it's gotten more expensive to produce off-Broadway, so therefore it's harder to keep it on you a pay, weekly you basis You pay the same running. for the advertising, whether it's yeah. a Broadway... Yeah, and this you thing, know. when you've only got 300 seats, you know, to, to cover all the same bills and you're competing... Well, and it's same. also, you know, if you're, if you're selling a, an off-Broadway ticket for 65, 70 bucks, and they're discounting the Broadway show for the same amount down the street, who, what are you going to... As the consumer... What are you going to spend your money on? You're, there's this. There's this. It, certainly within the mindset of a of a of a tourist or a, or a, a you know not an avid theater goer, it's going to be. Oh, well, why wouldn't I go see a Broadway show for the same amount of money? And I think that that's part of part of the challenge. Yeah, it's a, and if it's, you can run long enough to brand yourself, that's great. But if you can't sustain yourself long enough to brand yourself, then you've got a challenge. You know, look at. Look at Rock of Ages. Um, that was a show that was doing well off Broadway, but wasn't getting anywhere near the recognition that it gets now that it's on Broadway. You know, and 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 I think that that's that's a big challenge. Not every show belongs on Broadway, mm-hmm. but if you're going to have a a life in New York and a life beyond, you've got to find a way to get that exposure. Well, and it's weird because I mean, there's <clears> now <throat> there's gotten to the point where there's people who try things out off-Broadway and then move them to Broadway. So it's almost like it's a tryout for Broadway, which never used to be the case. I mean, it had its life in New York, either off-Broadway or Broadway, not one and then maybe the other. That just rarely, rarely ever happened. Uh, So it's just, it's odd, and it's too bad. I think there's a lot of great work that just simply doesn't get its commercial runs because you just can't afford to do them. I mean, there's no possible way you're ever going to make that money back. You know, I wonder if there's a way. You know, it seems to me like maybe like you're always talking about getting the audience and you know the subscription house. And you like, I mean, I wonder if there's a way for any sort of league to band together and offer a subscription package where you could kind of choose anything that's officially off Broadway, and you just get your like. I think that there. I mean, I I can't really speak for it. I know that there are many folks who feel the same way and are you know brainstorming and putting their heads together to try to find ways to. To work together because I think it's a frustration that in the field that we you know and it, and it and it's stifling how new work is is actually being developed. So I think there are a lot of people trying to put their heads together to figure that out, but it requires time and money and uh, all those things that are kind of at a premium. And organization. <laughs> and organization. Yeah. Well, in new work, it takes time to develop it. There there aren't a lot of opportunities for those writers to get developed. I mean, there's a lot of reading potential. There's it's, a lot of those kind of things. But, boy, getting me, it wet. It seems to me this job for Off-Broadway isn't up to the producers because it is such a scattered bunch. And, and we, we all know the returns aren't low. I think the, the onus has to get on the backs of some of these Off-Broadway theater houses. To figure out a way to, you mean the actual venues? The venues. And, you know, because well. they, they got to be facing some of the, the same problems. Do they want to have to hunt down a new tenant you know, every my, six weeks? My guess is there's a lot of conversation about that. You know, certainly, I, I, and I actually don't feel <laughs> feel that I've got the expertise to yeah, comment on that. Yeah, to yeah, be yeah. honest, yeah. I, I just know that it was it was a, a challenge for us. And it was something that we felt that we couldn't pursue with vanities to get back yeah, to vanities, yeah. and that um, <clears throat> we um, we feel good about uh, 
the opportunity that's come our way. And we, as as I think should be clear, we're we're pretty tenacious folks, and we don't give up. And you know, I cannot tell you the number of times somebody said to me, "Oh, oh, you oh you canceled the show. Too bad. You moving on." I'm like, "No, we didn't cancel it. We got two years into it. Our investors have put a lot of money into it. David and Jack have their heart and souls. We, these girls have been loyal. Judy and Dan. I mean, the entire creative team." has stuck with the show. They feel mm-hmm. passionate about it. Um, we just had to make one change because our music director was committed elsewhere, but she's still working on vocal arrangements, you know? And so this is a this is a group of people who feel very strongly in this show, and Brandy and I feel as strongly. Right. And, you know, so we're determined to finish what we what we started. Yeah. And, and I think uh, it's like you said, I, I think the life of it here is one thing, but the life beyond here is huge. And yeah. So we that, know that. That is another question. You said you have investors in the show, but, and now you're working with Second Stage. How does that relationship play into the ultimate like kind of financial stake that people have? In- well, ultimately, we had to raise additional money to um, enhance the production at Second Stage, and that's all part of the raise-up that we, you know, we've with the money that we've been raising to to, to finish the show. Okay. It's a little little untraditional, but I think you'll find as 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 the world moves forward there are some untraditional or non-traditional ways of developing new musicals. I mean, look at what David Stone did with Next to Normal. People said, "Oh, you know, open a second stage, the next step was Broadway." They knew they had work to do, so they found someplace else to go. So I'm sure they raised a little bit more money to support it at Arena Stage and then got the work done and decided to move it in. That's not a traditional, traditional. Mm -hmm. You know, it's traditional if it works, you know, and that's how it's done. And if it doesn't work, then it's a, you know, what were you, crazy? But so I don't, I think what's interesting is, you know, the economics are challenging, the environment is challenging. We as producers have to be very reactive to the environment, but it doesn't mean we quit. You know, yeah. we just and our investors have been very loyal and very supportive, and we try to keep them apprised of everything that's going on and and let them know that our priority is to get their money back. Right. So our priority is to finish this show, get it produced, see what the next step is, whether it's Broadway, whether it's a tour, whatever it is, but to keep pushing to finish what we started. And that's 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 how we feel. Yeah, about. it's sort of like any project you get involved with. You better love it because you're going to spend a, a lot, lot of time. time with it. And the people you're in the trenches with, you want to know that they're there with you no matter what. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, you want them there through the good and bad times, and they're going to be both. The good times are great. The bad times suck, you know? <laughs> so you want to be with people who are, you know, they're with you both, both, yeah. and we, we've been very fortunate. We have some very loyal people to it's this project true. and to us. So, yeah. so it's our responsibility think, to, uh, to, to be loyal to them. Yeah, and most of them understand this is a long-term project. That that's where the the real <clears throat> benefit of this show is is that it's going to be around for a long time. It's not whatever happens to it here is one thing, but it's going to be around for a long time. All right. Well, I think we got to wrap up here, but people will have a chance finally to see Vanities Yay! on stage. <laughs> uh, all the stars and, and and you say no stars. That's no stars to like the general public. But exactly. Please, we have very... stars. We have stars. These girls are stars. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, they're known in this community. It's yeah. not yeah. that they're not known exactly here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but July second previews start. Opens July sixteenth. Randy Adams and Sue Frost. I thank you so much for coming in and being so candid thank about you, the Michael. Thank you, Michael. Good luck. Thanks.
Broadway Abridged Live. When you just don't have three and a half hours for a show. Broadway Abridged presents Little Mermaid Abridged, or Disney on Ice, on Heelys. Scene. The theater where Beauty and the Beast died, er, closed. Curtain rises on a sailing ship. Enter some very, very English guy. Prince Eric. Yes, Crispy? Ever since your father died. Disney prerequisite met for one dead parent. It's been my duty to make sure that you are married by your 25th birthday, even though anybody can see that you're obviously 40 years old <coughs> or more. We'll let that slide and focus on the fact that you had better honor your father's dying wishes to get married so you can be king. Wait, if I'm not king until I get married, who's been king on the mile? Holy shit. <clears throat> Prince Eric is a tenor. Well, why are you so British? Isn't The Little Mermaid Danish story? Nobody really knows. Actually, in 1836, the Danish author Hans Christian Andersen... Get married by your 25th birthday or else. Blah! Scene. Underwater. Well, it looks like Shamu threw up. Enter a bunch of mermaids on Heelys. Darling, what's a Heely? It's kid sneakers, but they have wheels on the back to let us skate. Well, that's a surefire way to kill a kid. They must have a hell of a legal team. Enter a merman who's been working out. Good for you. Mm. Uh, now put on a damn shirt. It is I. <clears throat> it is. <clears throat> it is I, King Triton, here to commence this celebration over the triumph of war where the sea witch Ursula was banished. Unfortunately, Disney's executive branch has blocked me from speaking of this backstory ever again. Also, my wife died from it or something. Disney prerequisite already met for. One dead parent. While I accentuate my wonderful abs. <clears throat> Ooh. <clears throat> Oh. Let's get out that little crab or lobster or whatever that thing is. Sebastian! Enter black guy with red top hat and claws. No, man, no claws. It's just the red gloves. Who the hell are you? Hold on, Triton. You're black. But Ariel, you're white. Won't that confuse the kids? Oh, don't worry. In this version of the Greco-Roman mythology that came out of book writer Doug Wright's ass... Ursula is my sister. Perhaps you are the products of Poseidon getting it on with the giant squid, Yamon. That's just disgusting. Scene, the shore, which looks like a cellophane monster threw up. Enter a girl in a skimpy clamshell bra. <laughs> Little boys in the audience are suddenly enjoying the show for reasons they won't understand. Oh. A few little girls, too. Hi, little girls, it's me, the crappy Acmas... Nappy Craptus... The crappy actress that Disney cast as Ariel. Remember when you wanted to grow up to be Ariel? Remember Carrie Butler when Disney promised everybody that you'd be in this role? <laughs> well, I'm Ariel and you're not. <laughs> Enter a little kid in a yellow shirt. Hi, Ariel. Who are you? I'm Flounder. Oh, I thought you were a homeless kid. Nope. Just my crappy costuming. Enter something that looks nothing even remotely like a seagull. Hello, old creepy man. Hello, Ariel. Hello, SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm Flounder. Yeah, I bet you are. The old man sings a dinglehopper song, joined by a chorus that looks a lot like a cotton factory threw up. Well, the point being made here is if you do decide to see the show, you might want to bring a vomit bag. Mickey Mouse-shaped vomit bags are now available in the lobby for the low, low price of $29.95. Oh, boy! Oh. Scene, Ursula's Lair, which is decorated in... What the hell color palette is this? Sorrow. Sorrow? Anyway, enter a platform attached to a poor actress. It is I, Ursula. Rachel, you use that voice in Wicked. Uh, great 
Jeez. Chorus line. It's me, Ursula. Come on, gay guy from Alta Boys, black guy from Spelling Bee, help me out. I need an opening villain introduction song. How about poor unfortunate souls? I can't. Ariel isn't here yet. What about the song where you try to convince Ariel to... All right, that's poor unfortunate souls, isn't it? Tis. How about a song that talks about how much you miss the year 1940? What does that have to do with anything? I don't know. Maybe it's a trunk song that lyricist Steve Slater... Had lying around. Ooh, from his musical about... Cheetah Rivera. Missing the year 1940 or something. something. What? Hey, why am I tied down to this platform? I think they represent your tentacles, or maybe passerby seaweed. Some help you eels are. We're, We're supposed, supposed to, to represent, represent eels? eels? Ew. Scene, Ariel's Palace. Ariel's sisters enter and sing a brand new, totally original song. Wow! She's in love, she's in love, she's in love, she's in love, she's in love with a wonderful guy. That wastes ten minutes and never would have happened if Howard Ashman was still alive. Why, look at you, not all that thin, sister. And you, downright big bone, sister. I guess everyone was wrong all along. Disney is concerned with role models. Why else would they have cast some of my sisters as not overly thin girls? Oh, well, how much do you weigh? 63 pounds. Enter King Triton. Ariel, 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 you are far too skinny to go up to the surface alone. Also, um, something your mother's voice. The human world is a dangerous place where the sets are slightly better and the costuming doesn't force you to guess. But, Father, I'm in love with a tenor who's trying to pass himself off as Prince Eric. And the only way I can get him to love me back is if you could use your magic to grant me... Legs? No, I will not. Actually, he doesn't really care about legs. He says he'll be fine so long as I have a vagina. Scene. Part of your world. Finally. Actress playing Ariel tries to fool herself into believing that she can act, and that a red wig doesn't look downright hideous on her. Walk, run, and snow day in the sun, blah, 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 part of your world. The audience claps because they love this song. But really, the audience would have clapped if the damn song were farted out by a fat man. Scene, Under the Sea. The set is adorned with... Bongs? Are these underwater bongs? Ariel, you don't want to go up to the surface. You want to stay here, where we have lots of fishes. Retarded Sebastian, later on you're going to have to explain to me how you're so adept at wavering in and out of a Jamaican accent within a single sentence. Well, Mon. You just sling your song, sting your song, sing your song, and I'll just, just get out of here in the first ten seconds, okay? A bunch of marine creatures swim by in some stupid carousel-like things. Ooh. And your job is to figure out what they are. <laughs> no, this isn't like the Circle of Life in Lion King, where it was cool that some wooden thing was a gazelle. It's a lot more subjective here. More of a... Mommy, what's that? Don't you know? I think it's a vomit fish. Oh, Mommy, can we get a vomit fish to take home? Funny. I think I saw Disney sales clerks hacking those in the lobby. <laughs> Scene, Up Where They Walk. Prince Eric enjoys tender evenings, cotton candy, and walking on the sand. Oh, that girl with the ridiculously fake red hair and the voice and the clamshell bra. Oh, 
How I long for her clamshell bra. But singing about her voice would provide a much better lyric, I'm sure. See, Ursula's lair. We can assist you, Ariel. Yes, we can service you. How can two gay eels help me? We're, We're not, not playing, playing gay eels. <laughs> Bullshit. Ursula enters. I hear you're looking for a vag. Well, you've come to the right place. Uh, the proper term is padoodle do. Sing for me, toots. Ah. Ah. Okay, okay. You need it more than I do. Scene. The surface. Prince Eric and Ariel are falling in love. Hey, let's dance, mute girl. But since you can't speak, I'll be the only one who sings. Mm. You know, if you could speak, this duet we're going to sing would make the slightest bit of sense. Mm. Can't you just sing yourself in your own head? Mm. Ooh, that kind of works. Scene. The kitchen. Sebastian is being chased around, just like in the movie. Oh, look, I'm in the kitchen, man, and the chef wants to cook me. Oh, look, I am a French chef, and I am not running very hard after you. Also, it looks really strange that I want to cook a five-foot-nine black man in a top hat. Stop swinging a knife at me and missing me by six feet. Chorus, come over here and gloss over this awkwardness. The chorus sings and dances in a spectacular kitchen number. Les poissons, les poissons, hee hee hee, ho ho ho. Then we'll sing you off to sleep while you digest. Tonight you'll pop your feet up with finality. Les poissons, les poissons, les poissons. Proof of what we've all known since 1991. Scene, various locales. And everybody is singing to themselves, but at the same time, so you know it's cluttered, uh, important. Prince Eric. She might be the girl I love, but the girl I love had that voice. Well, I'm shallow. King Triton. Where is Ariel? We're suddenly in the middle of Act Two, and I finally notice she's not around. Boy, I must be a really shitty father. Ariel. You can tell I listen to the soundtrack a lot as a kid because I sing each lyric and note like the CD. Exactly. Part of your world. Scene. Ship deck. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for a singing contest. I don't remember this in the movie. That's because it's not in the movie. In this version, Eric, you're so enamored with Ariel's voice and confused as to why Ariel ends up being a mute that you decide to hold a singing contest to see if you can really find that voice. Oh! That sounds like a story change that could prove valuable. I am singing. I am singing. I am singing. Or just silly. Now, after dragging this out endlessly, I'm going to choose Ariel because she knows the gift of dance or something. Let's kiss. Okay, let's kiss Prince Eric because I love you and... Oh, wait, I'm a mute. They're about to kiss when suddenly... Hey, it's me, Ursula. Time's up and I'm here to take you back. So you're representing a squid but easily walking around on dry land now? So, so are we, we somehow. somehow. Yeah, you're coming with me. So Ariel was a mermaid. She didn't change into a mermaid in front of you. So how do you know? I saw the movie. Ah. ah. Scene underwater. Now, at last, I have you in my grasp, Ariel. Ha! <laughs> oh, yeah, by the way, this is my shell. If you destroy it, I die and stuff, okay? Not so fast. Prince Eric appears from above in his ship and tries drowning it in... To Ursula's underwater lair? Oh no, I am mildly distracted! Because how did you get your ship to plunge so many feet below sea level? Does it turn into a submarine? No. Can you breathe underwater? 
No. Well, you were mildly distracted. I got your shell. And now I'm throwing it to the ground. She does. And now I'm dying. She does. <coughs> wow, you'd think that if I could just die that way, I'd be a bit more careful about leaving my shell around. Ariel. <clears throat> Ariel. <clears throat> Ariel. I'm proud of your exertion of barely any energy to kill Ursula, and I'm sorry that I was so harsh on you going up to the surface. That's okay, Dad. I accept. Let that be a metaphoric lesson to all the parents in the audience today that they should, um, let their kids go to Harlem by themselves. Ariel! You're alive and can talk! Oh, but you're a mermaid. Please, Daddy. All right. He hands her a package. She opens it up. A vagina in a box! However did you know? In honor of this event, I will allow for one day the people of the sea and the people of the land to come together! Mermaids and human folk dance with each other on stage in a way that can only be represented. Go ahead, think about it, and it still makes no logical sense at all. Curtain falls. The audience leaves to go home in silence. Enter a Disney Imagineer with a prop from a far better Little Mermaid show that's going on over at the MGM Studios in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> okay, so I got the giant Ursula audio animatronic here that takes up the whole stage, and it makes for a very satisfying, wondrous ending that you'd expect from an expensive Disney show. Silence. Fuck you guys! Blackout. <laughs> Little Mermaid Abridged didn't just sprout heelys and roll out of the primordial ooze. It was created with the help of these fine actors. I'm Stephen Olander, and I condone the gay eel lifestyle. I'm Jacqueline Haberman, and I'm a merjew. I'm Randall Meal, and Disney could suck my big mouse cock. <laughs> I'm Rachel Pincus, and I want to get paid for this already. I'm Gil Verode, and I'm a ripoff artist. Find more hilarious scripts at broadwayabridge.com, including Gil Verode's hilarious take on this year's Tony Awards. Jenna Esposito has been running the cabaret circuit in New York for about five years now. And uh, she's currently doing a new show. Jenna Esposito sings Connie Francis. And she also has a CD that she's recently put out, 13 Men and Me. And we have got Jenna Esposito in here in the, in the studio to talk. And she's going to sing a couple songs on the CD live in the studio. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. You know, I, I have to preface this with I saw you performing at Birdland, I think, in uh, end of January or February. And I missed your name. But I was like, wow, she's oh, fantastic. Funny. And uh, and when you came walking up the street, uh, you know you, your press agent had set this up with me, and you came walking through, you recognized you instantly. I was like, "Wow, I'm I'm glad because I wanted to." Uh, Birdland has been great. It's funny actually. They they gave me a theme song there um, to the tune of Fascinating Rhythm. They do Jenna Esposito, you got me on the go, Jenna Esposito, <laughs> and people know me because of it. Jeffrey Denman, um, you know, big Broadway star. I ran into him at a, a party, and I was in awe. And you know, Mr. Denman, it's so nice to meet you. And he said. Jenna Esposito, why is that familiar? And he started singing the Jenna Esposito song that they came up with at, at Cast Party at Birdland. So it's been good to me. All right. <laughs> well, so first thing is uh, tell us a little bit about your new show, uh, Jenna Esposito Sings Connie Francis. Um, I have no idea. I'm, I'm lost by the title. Well, <laughs> it, it actually got started. Uh, speaking of Birdland, I, did, uh, I sang Where the Boys Are there last summer at Cast Party. Um, and after I sang Where the Boys Are, about four or five people came up to me and said, Jenna... Have you ever thought about doing a Connie Francis show? Because this it just sounds great in your voice. I said, well, I hadn't thought of it, but I will now. And so I started doing some research, and I was shocked. I didn't know Stupid Cupid was hers, and that was another big hit for her. Um, I knew Among My Souvenirs and Everybody Somebody's Fool. 
But then once I looked beyond the bigger hits that I knew, there was some amazing material, and what a life story. Uh, she went through so much. She, Her brother was murdered. Her aunt was murdered. She was um, brutally raped after a performance in Long Island, and... She's just bounced back from it all. and she's Where was the E! Entertainment channel back then? I know. <laughs> they would have loved that. But um, she, she's just such a fighter. She, she's an incredible woman. And I actually uh, I got to see her in concert a couple months ago. She's 70 years old, uh, still performing. And she's just amazing. Um, really, she was ahead of her time as far as women in the recording industry go. She actually had the final say on which singles were released. Um, she was very in charge of her own career, which was pretty cool. Um, and she also she had a big international career too. She recorded in thirteen languages. So in the show, we're going to do a couple of her Italian songs because um, those actually uh, had a lot of, ex- of success in the United States too. But such an interesting career, and the music is just a blast to sing. All right, and when is that show running? It opens Tuesday, June twenty third at the Metropolitan Room, and we run four Tuesdays in a row. Uh, all shows at seven p.m. there. All right, and then in addition, you've also uh, recently put out a CD that that you've been stomping around promoting. (laughs) Yeah, the CD is 13 Men and Me, and uh, that that title was inspired. There's a track. Do you get a lot of porn hits when you when people search in the website for? No, but somehow somehow when people search for Jenna, there's like the Jenna Jameson connection, and I I do I do get some porn hits, and I'm not sure quite how when I do when I track how people get to my website. Oh no 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 bare breasts! What why they come to this site? That's the wrong Jenna. But um, Thirteen Men actually, Anne Margaret recorded another you know great '60s singer. she recorded it in, I think, 1960, and it, it went nowhere, but it's, it was such a cool song, and I found it on one of those compilation CDs, uh, Martini Madness, and I fell in love with it. So I'd had that. I'd been singing it for a couple years, and we ended up putting it on the CD, and uh, when I was thinking of what to call the CD itself, I was going through various titles of songs, and 13 Men was among them, but nothing was really in the lead to be the title of the CD, and I was talking to a friend one night, and I said, you know, there's so many great guys who played on this CD, and he said, how many were there? So I counted up the musicians, all male, that played on the CD, and there were 13. <laughs> so it just worked out, 13 men and me. All right, well, before we go further, do you want to, you're going to, you got your backing tracks here with you from your studio session. You're going to sing live for us here. Yes, I'm going to do um, Sorry Said the Moon, which a friend of mine co-wrote. Uh, his name is David Goldman. He co-wrote it with Brian Seymour. And it's a beautiful love song about the end of a relationship as told from the point of view of the moon, which is kind of cool. And the second one is called Remembering September and July, which uh, the producer of my CD, Kelly Park, actually wrote. Um, it's a fun kind of up-tempo jazz tune, and I'm the first one to record it. All right. So you ready to sing your songs first? I am. Are you ready? Yep. Great. Their love affair ended, who really knows why? On the sands by the sea, under the moon's very eyes. Sorry, said the moon, I brought you together Then you broke apart I can't mend broken hearts What ended so soon Could have been forever Under my magical light Sorry, said the moon, I'll always remember That very first night My reflection in your eyes, now wistful and blue If you'd only surrendered 
to the pull of the tides. You had it all for a while, dancing beneath my gentle smile, like waves rolling closer and closer. It was truly love. Now it's over. Sorry, said the moon. To all the you lovers I've left behind, please don't think me unkind. May your dreams come true someday. With another for you, I'll always shine. Dancing beneath my gentle smile, like waves rolling closer and closer. It was truly love. Now it's over. Sorry, said the moon to all of you lovers I've left behind. Please don't think me unkind. May your dreams come true someday. With another for you, I'll always shine. Sorry, said the moon. Sorry, said the moon. May love come your way soon. Sorry, said the moon. Sorry, said the Said the moon. Sorry, said the moon. Can't make up my mind. There's no you. No reason or rhyme will say that we're through. Yeah, I still feel the chill each day. The thrill has never gone away. The rapture that we knew, I can't deny. Remembering September in July. Can't make up the time now that you're gone. You're so far away from where we belong. But I'm not dancing like before, or romancing round your door. The rapture that we knew, I can't deny. Remembering September. Remembering the park across the way, 
where strangers laugh and children play, where lovers nestle as they sigh, remembering when it all passed us by. Tell me why can't make up my mind now that we're through. Remember the love that we almost knew. Yeah, I still feel the chill each day. The thrill has never gone away. It all comes back as summer slowly dies. Remembering September in July. Remembering September in July. style of music which is arguably about the most unhip I know. music there is. How did you get into this and how young were you when you started getting into like kind of standards and Um it's fine my my dad is a musician. He actually is my musical director and he brought me up on um pretty much rock and roll, 60s rock and roll, which got me interested in the 60s as a whole. Um so I grew up on the Beatles and Elvis and um kind of 60s girl groups. And then in high school, I went to a very small private high school, and we didn't have enough instruments for a concert band. 
and I played the flute. So they put together a jazz band, and uh, it was a pretty basic rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar, and then the, the uh, horn section was me on flute. We had an alto sax, a trombone, and a violin, and that was our little jazz band. And um, so we just played strict instrumentals, and then my, the conductor of the jazz band found out that I sing. And so he started giving me, you know, Ella Fitzgerald tunes to do, and it really just opened my eyes to this whole other world of music, which I would bring home to my dad, and he said, you know, growing up, he always kind of turned his nose up at it because he wanted to listen to Elvis instead. But we kind of both got into it at the same time because I was singing it, and he wanted to play with me, and so we ended up just kind of finding our niche doing a combination of the standards and kind of the retro rock and pop. So what was the process for you when you were putting together your CD? Did you produce this yourself? or? Yeah, yeah, it self-produced. Um, like I said, Kelly Park, uh, who's a musical director out in California, he kind of took me under his wing and uh, served as the executive producer on it, but it was funded by me, so I guess that's self-produced. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a process. It, it, took, it took a while, and we actually recorded 12 tracks to start that we thought we were, were going to make up the whole CD, and then we ended up scrapping half of them and recording another six and then adding two more in a live track. We just wanted it to have a certain feel, and, it, and it's weird. If you look at the songs on it, they're pretty eclectic, but there is kind of an overall feel to, to, to the CD, I think. Um, but it's just, we just went through a learning process, and just sitting in the studio and spending countless hours at night, and you, I learned that you can really overmix things. <laughs> And we had, you know, we had to take a couple weeks break in the middle of it because we were just driving ourselves crazy. But it was a really, really fun project, and um, I, I, I would love to do another one. It was the best learning experience in the world. So I'm, I'm actually glad I didn't have a big shot producer because I, I wouldn't have learned as much as I did. So now, where can people pick up Thirteen Men and Me? Uh, it's on iTunes, and it's also on CD Baby. Or if you run into me at Birdland, I, I always have a couple on me. <laughs> <laughs> and people can go where to get uh, tickets to your cabaret show? Uh, www.metropolitanroom.com, or they can call the Metropolitan Room at 212-206-0440. And your website is? JennaEsposito.com. So the, that's pretty so straightforward. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to roll out playing another track from your CD cool. here. So, uh, which one would you like us to play off this? How about Eso Beso? Eso Beso. So, this is the actual studio version. And uh, Jenna Esposito, thanks so much for coming into the studio. Everybody, catch uh, if you can at the Metal- Metropolitan Room. Jenna Esposito sings Connie Francis or pick up 13 Men and Me anywhere. Thanks so much, Michael. Eso Beso. Ooh, that kiss. So that's so, ooh, you kiss. It's got something, don't know what. But whatever it's got, you know it's got a lot. When we samba, close like this. Aya, caramba, I need that kiss. Hold me closer and we'll soar. For the samba's are swinging his way to make a more. As we dip and sway, we caress this way. Samba seems to say, love is here to stay. Like a samba sound, my heart begins to pound. I go off the ground to where I'm poco, loco, eso, eso. As we did and-
A screenwriter gets involved in a uh, drug organization is one of the basic premises of the new show Predisposal, which is being presented by the EBE Ensemble from July 8th through the 25th. And we have got the director, Joshua Luria, and uh, one of the actor and co-managing director, Joe Mullen, here with us. How are you guys doing? Good. Hello. So you guys want to introduce yourselves quick so people can connect the voice with your name? Well, uh, I'm Joshua Luria, and I'm directing the show, and I'm general manager for EBE Ensemble. And uh, I'm Joe Mullen, and I'll be playing uh, Rob D., uh, and I'm also a co-managing director of the company. All right, so uh, first things first, tell us a little bit about Predisposal. What, what, are your, what is the show about? Well, on its surface, it's a play that tells the story of a young man who goes to school in New York City to become a screenwriter, and he finds himself in Brooklyn one day and uh, runs into two African-Americans that are involved with this drug syndicate. And um, I don't want to tell too much the story if you're going to come see it. <laughs> but um, And so he has problems, and the two men he meets have problems, and they want to get out of what they're involved in, and they think they can help each other, but they don't know that they're helping each other. They just think they're helping themselves. So that's on the surface. And yeah. under the surface, it's about a girl who wants to go to the ballet? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this, this the Russian ballet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so he's actually trying to become a ballerina under all the writing. But um, what, what I, I kind of take it is, is um, you know, you, you, you don't really know what anyone's um, motivations are. Um, Really, I mean, you, you assume that, you know, it's just this happenstance meeting that um, something kind of organic and um, interesting comes out of. This guy literally just says, I have a story for you. I, I want you to, I want to tell you my story. And it's unclear how much of this um, this other character, Rob X, how much of his story is true and autobiographical or how much of it is him just, you know, sprouting um, ridiculous stuff, to, you know, to, to make into some ridiculous uh, screenplay. Um but Rob D. Either way, is, is completely you know infatuated with it, and they you know basically decide at the end of the you know middle of the of the play to at the end of the first act to um, to meet and actually get this down on paper and write it and actually you know do this. And um, it's interesting yeah. to see where the story goes, just based on um, how the characters are driven by the external external forces in their lives that 
push them to do things that maybe they don't want to do or keep them from doing things they'd like to do. And um, you, you really get to see how people react to that or let those things drive themselves, especially in, in a crisis situation, the place set in this summer. And um, yeah, I think you I, might. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, they're just both two very desperate people, you know, and you know, and uh, looking for something to, to to sort of salvage their their lives, their careers, whatever, to get them out of the sort of um, destitute situation that they're both in. And um, yeah, it all kind of you know takes a turn for the worse eventually. So, um, as EB Ensemble, what attracted you guys to the show? Where did you find it? <laughs> Well, the writer is actually um, a company member who we are in big support of, and we were always trying to find um, new writers with new voices. Um, and we only generally produce, um, you know, world premieres or works that have never been produced in New York before. Um, and John Prescott, the writer, um, who's basically our resident playwright uh, currently, uh, has been working on it for a while, and it's actually loosely based on a on an interaction he had with a random homeless man in Crown Heights, Brooklyn uh, about 18 months ago. Yeah, last summer. Yeah, yeah. So we're just, we just really, we love John's work. He's got a very interesting um, voice, the way he writes characters, the dialogue, um, and just his um, intelligence is, is so clear and, and unique in his writing. And we, um, you know, we, we just have full support in him, full confidence in him, and we really think this is probably the best play he's ever written. We've produced four of his plays in the past two years. Yeah, well, so, I, I don't know how to count it because right. one was an evening of uh, Chekhov one acts that, that he, he translated. Adapted. Yeah, they adapted, and so, then and then a one act or three, and uh, then one act, but only one length. other full length. But yeah, so so how long has EBE Ensemble been producing here? Since uh, December of 2006 was when the first show went up. Yeah. So and what was the episode? What, what made you guys decide you wanted to take the plunge into producing theater in New York as well? Well, we all met in acting school at NYU. At the Atlantic Theater At the Atlantic Company. Theater Company. And, you know, kind of the big, um, you know, uh, theory that's pushed there um, because how, that's how they got started was that, you know, you go out in the world and you try to make it in this industry. And if you can't find work, you've got to make your own. And we kind of just took that idea and ran with it. Yeah, we, we we started a company because we knew we could work well together. We were interested in similar things, and we created good things together. No, yeah, so, I, we've we've achieved definitely. a lot of success. Definitely have <laughs> a you know a following developing now, and uh, of, of 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 people who we haven't even you know gone to school with. That's how it all started. Was you know people like colleagues and stuff would be interested in working or uh, having us help them produce work or adapt it or uh, develop it. And um, it's kind of taken off, and it's really exciting. And, uh, yeah, we're pretty, we're really proud of it. You know. So what have been some of the biggest stumbling blocks along the way for you getting the, the company going? Capital. Of course, as, you know. Bottom most, line. Bottom line, yeah. Uh, what have been some of the things you've done to raise money to, to get the shows going? Well, we've had different fundraising opportunities, events, I might call them. Sure. Uh, Parties, gatherings. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you got to understand. You know, there's, you know, you deal with a lot of different demographics. But our our base is, you know, undergraduate college students. You know, we both just graduated actually this past mm -hmm. spring. But um, so in that situation, is uh, you know, if you 
get a venue and uh, a couple cases of wine and a keg, you'll be surprised what kind of what kind of turnout you'll get. But also, we're, we do a lot yeah. of different. That's just one example. We're also <laughs> a fiscally sponsored project, so yes. people we get donations from people who enjoy the work. Um, our tickets have been relatively cheap all along for the production value, so people have felt inclined to give to an organization they enjoyed the work. Yeah. So, and they get a tax deductible donation uh, right off. Right off, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's been some of it. We we just got um, a sort of grant actually too. A sort of and, grant. Yeah, yeah. And we're Is this from we're, drug dealers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. No, but we're we're working on grant making and um, grant grant seeking. We're not making any grants. Mm-hmm. No. But. Uh, um, it, it's, it's a large part of it is also you know becoming uh, you know an incorporated entity and uh, getting your 501c3. Uh, I mean we are sponsored technically right now by a 501c3, but we need you know there's also the long process of becoming completely independent in that sense that yeah. we're still working on. But you know hopefully when that happens we'll get a little bit more attention. <laughs> so how far in the future do you work in planning your your releases and shows that you're going to mount? Do you have like things on the docket already, or are you like pretty much one show at a time here? Let's, before now, we've been one show at a time. Um, I like making to say one it to the fire next show. at a time. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, you, you're in the middle of the show and you you you're pulling out your hair and you don't know if you're going to make it through the show and then it ends up great and you had a great time even though some moments were stressful and some moments were incredible. But um, I mean, but as now, of right now, yeah, we've, we've we've we did a um, play reading competition festival um, a month and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And the winner of that um, competition is going to get a workshop produced in August, which we know we're doing. And then there will also be uh, ensemble uh, production in the fall. We're thinking late October. Um, so, yeah, we've extended one show at a time to about, you know, four or five months in advance. So, Yeah, and, and now as we're looking to incorporate and then work on our 501c3 status, uh, one of the things we'll be doing in the next two or three weeks is writing out a three-year plan, trying to organize a complete full season for either next season or the the one after that, the next. Yeah. Which is, you know, daunting, but I think we're up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting, actually. All right, so now where is uh, Predisposal playing? It's playing at the Access Theater on Broadway and White. And uh, give us again the details. Where can they find tickets? Where can they get more information? Tickets can be found on our website, ebeensemble.com. There's uh, plenty of information there right on the front page for the. Click on the button that says get tickets. Okay, wow. Okay. (laughs) Where where, where are the. (laughs) You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. (laughs) No, I wouldn't. (laughs) 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 All right, so Predisposal runs July 8th through the 25th. And Joe Mullen and Joshua Luria, thanks so much for stopping by to discuss your show. And best of luck with EBE Ensemble. Thank you very much. All right. Curtain call. Well, that wraps up Volume 316 for Broadway Bullet. If you want to find out more information on uh, any of the shows that we talked about, just go to broadwaybullet.com and click on the show notes for Volume 316. And remember, if you're uh, interested in getting into a drawing to win uh, one of five signed CDs for the new BMI Musical Theater project that I'm going to be working on, producing and engineering, 
Just send me an email to mgilbo at broadwaybullet.com telling me how long you've been listening to the show and why you listen, and uh, I'll announce the winners next episode. Thanks, everybody, for all your support. Thanks for joining me this week, and we'll be back uh, first and third Thursday of the month in July. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet. It's a thrilling moment. When Dove's session audition come up, we are so ready and raring. So Jake Kowski says my name and I'm in the can. Actually, the bar fade thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, when you proposed. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.